Welcome to Ask an Ex-Mormon Therapist. This is your host, Jenny Morrow, and I'm coming to you after a big LDS General Conference weekend. Before we get into today's discussion, I want to remind you all of the upcoming fall workshop, and this will be a question and answer workshop held on Friday, November 6th in Salt Lake City from 7 to 10 p.m. And I'm really excited about this. It's going to give me a chance to get to know some of you. Um, we can enjoy some hors d'oeuvres together and spend time answering your questions. So I'll also be offering ideas and tools for how to more effectively work through your experience of being in Mormonism or being outside of Mormonism or, trans or transitioning in some way. So I think it'll be a really nice night. And wherever you are in your own process and your own experience, you are welcome to join. Registration for the social and the workshop will be $20. And it's about half full. So be sure and send an email to morrow, M-O-R-R-O-W, dot Jenny, J-E-N-N-Y, at gmail.com, or an email to exmormontherapist at gmail.com to get your name on the list. And once I've received your email, I will respond to you with details, the address, and how to pay. So go ahead and shoot me an email if you're interested in joining that night. I think it'll be hopefully really fun and interesting and good to connect with others and meet. So that is it for announcements and let's talk General Conference. LDS General Conference is something that happens twice a year. For some people, General Conference feels really good and for others, it can feel really bad. So General Conference is an interesting time because it can really charge up emotions. For people who love the church, it charges and magnifies those. For people who are in pain with the church or angry or hurt or confused, it can bring up and magnify those. So I hope today's episode will be helpful as you take any of your experiences from General Conference and find greater clarity about reality. And to kick off today's discussion, I'm going to use a comment that came through on my blog from a listener named Donna, and Donna gave me permission to use her questions, so I'm just going to go ahead and read the letter that she sent through the post. She says, Hi Jenny, I've noticed a lot of former Mormons, including myself, have been triggered and stressed out from General Conference this past weekend. We see so much about it in our social media feeds, both from TBM friends and family, true believing member friends and family, who aren't blocked for whatever reason, I'm assuming she means blocked from social media, as well as from ex-Mormon groups who are understandably venting about it. What's bothered me most was hearing about specific messages being said during general conference that make me mad because they're so manipulative or insulting or fear-inducing. They're just terrible. It's hard to just let that go. I really wish I could. And now, post-general conference, I'm seeing the aftermath on my Facebook thread. Many of my LDS friends who don't normally post excessively about the church, and who I therefore have not unfollowed, are posting six, eight, ten posts all in a row, parroting back these horrible messages they heard this weekend. Maybe I just need to avoid social media during and immediately after the next conference. But I don't remember it being this bad last time. For reference, I mentally left the church a year ago, but have officially been out for 10 months. What I really want to know is, how can I better cope with these kinds of triggers? I find myself wanting to, quote, answer those messages I see, but answer to who? 
The church doesn't care, and I'm not looking to get into an argument with friends and loved ones. I don't want to post stuff on my Facebook page because I don't want to offend people, even though all I'm doing is sharing my opinion, but it would also open up things to arguments, and I'm just not interested. It's not like it's going to make any difference to people still in the church anyway. All they'll do is spin it to mean I've left the church, but I can't leave it alone. Therefore, the church must be true. So irritating. So I feel silenced, even though I'm aware that I'm silencing myself. And that's hard. Also, I find myself worrying that the messages these friends and family heard all weekend will have a direct impact on my relationships with them. What if they now feel motivated to either reactivate or shun me? Has this impacted their opinion of me? Because now I'm weak, wicked, misled, etc., etc. More than that, how can I stop caring what the church or anyone thinks of me? I know myself. I know I'm a good person and doing the best I can with the world as I see it. Why can't that be enough? Thanks so much again for all you're doing. Donna so thanks Donna for all of the questions and the details. The energy of conference weekend can just be strong and so the first thing to know is just to be aware of that. And yeah, can we take a vacation or leave the state if you're in Utah or just not get on your Facebook pages? And those are all options. But either way, even leaving Utah or even staying away from social media, you know, the whole reason we even have to do that is because there's this reality, which is this weekend can bring up a lot of stuff, both for people in the church, for people out of the church, for people anywhere in between. And so taking a deep breath and just knowing this is a big thing. And maybe one day it won't be a big thing. You know, my guess is, for some people, they may not even be listening to this podcast because there may not even be enough interest in following Mormon issues, ex-Mormon issues, anything like that. But for those of us who still feel drawn to have friends who are Mormon, to engage in any way, shape, or form in Mormonism, even from outside of the church or even as a post-Mormon, ex-Mormon, a NOM member, when we feel any kind of emotional sensation in regards to Mormonism, you know, that's information that there's still something there for us to learn about reality. And, you know, because the truth is, there's things going on all around the world where there are messages being spoken that can be perceived as horrible or harmful, but we don't necessarily feel bothered by those other conferences or those other gatherings. So the reason that you even feel bothered by what's being said at general conferences because on some level there is still connection to it and it might just be that the people I love or some of the people I love are connected to it and that doesn't mean I have to cut those people off or get rid of them I mean I can choose to renegotiate relationships in whatever way I want and you know you could listen to the forgiveness episode to start getting some ideas around that but for those of us who who genuinely have a desire to maintain friendships, family member relationships with people who are Mormon. And for those of us who are still going through our own understanding of what happened in the experience of Mormonism and how to integrate this new awareness into our life and move on in a healthy, happy way, you know, general conference can be very triggering. So I would say really letting yourself just acknowledge that that was just a reality for you. And it sounds like the last one 
wasn't as triggering, but for whatever reason, this one was. And when anything triggers us, we can always bow to it. And you know, even if it's just in our imagination, we can acknowledge it as something that's brought up information about us. Because one thing to go back to is the idea that our emotions are information for us about us. So anytime something brings up strong emotion, whether it's a pleasant emotion or an unpleasant emotion, that thing is mirroring information to us for us about us. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means as we get into the discussion today. Something that I thought about as I was reading Donna's questions was the idea of idealism and on the flip side cynicism. And this was a big thing that actually came out out of the Eldest General Conference this last weekend. And that was one of the talks that talked about skepticism and cynicism being a negative or a bad thing. So I want to address not that talk in particular, but I want to address the idea of idealism and cynicism in general. And I want to talk a little bit about the benefits of each. And I want to talk a little bit about the disadvantages of each and how general conference, which can spur on our idealistic side for those who are involved in Mormonism and love the church, um, or can spur up our cynical side for those of us who have been in pain around the church or who have left the church or are navigating relationships with people in the church. You know, how to use both of those experiences because Mormonism is just, um, you know, Mormonism might be the one way in your life that this is going to be tricky to work through. But, you know, you might find this show up in other areas of your life as well, whether it's with careers or relationships or children or friendships, parenting, anything like that. So hopefully today's discussion will be helpful for how to work through triggers around general conference, but also how to work through triggers in general. And I know we've talked a little bit about the word trigger in the past. It is kind of a therapy jargon word, but it can be helpful because it's that feeling of just being overwhelmed with some kind of experience of emotion. So we call it a trigger because it is the thing that brings up emotion, brings it to the experience of being able to feel it. And sometimes the trigger is something that shuts us down and numbs us out. So sometimes people come into my office and they say, well, I just don't feel anything. And then as we start processing, then all of the emotion starts coming up about something. So a trigger can either lead to an emotional reaction or it can lead to an emotional suppression. So let's talk a little bit more about the ideas of idealism and cynicism. And cynicism is different than skepticism. We won't talk about that in this episode today because this isn't a conference review, but just putting that out there so that there aren't any questions about whether we're talking about skepticism here. We're not talking about skepticism. We're talking about cynicism today. There's a great book called Creating Love by John Bradshaw. And in this book, he talks about the idea of mystified love. And he describes mystified love as a kind of confused love, like a foggy or cloudy experience of love. So on some level, we pick up information along the way from the time we're very young that certain ways of being and thinking and acting and feeling are more acceptable to our caregivers, parents, teachers, friends, family, than others way, other ways of thinking and being. And so whenever we have any kind of a sense that the only time I, I am lovable is when I am not being myself, then it starts to confuse love. 
So this happens, for example, in abusive homes where a parent can be loving and understanding and compassionate one moment and then something gets pushed, they get a button pushed or a trigger and they suddenly flip into a different state of being and they act out aggressively against the child in some way verbally, mentally, emotionally, physically. And mystified love can begin here because suddenly the child is trying to assess how did that happen? Maybe it was something about me. Suddenly there's a sense of I'm not lovable if dot 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 or it's dangerous if dot 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 or I'll be rejected if dot dot dot. And so we pick up these little messages about what will be acceptable and allowable and where we will be rejected or hurt or harmed. But mystified love is really interesting because I can work with someone who is in an abusive relationship, so their spouse might be emotionally harming them in some way, but in a way it feels familiar. And so this is a really interesting part of religious transition because as much as we can look at the Mormon church or any other church and say, wow, there were some harmful parts of this experience, which we maybe were not even aware of at the time, we maybe thought, oh, it's my fault. It's my fault I'm not getting an answer to prayer if I would just be more righteous or fast more. And this can be similar to, you know, it's my fault mom yelled at me. I was being a bad kid. Or it's my fault dad hit me. And it's interesting because we can work with victims of abuse and they can say intellectually, I know it wasn't my fault, but something deep inside of us will still believe that. And one of the things that I find really valuable and helpful is to sort out what pieces are whose. So kind of looping back around, for those of us in the, who were in Mormonism, there can be a confusion about if things aren't working the way I want them to work in the church or just in my life in general, how much of it is my fault or which pieces of this problem actually belong to me and which pieces of this, pieces of this problem belong to someone else. And in religion, it's really, really tricky because the message that's reinforced is if you're not getting the answers we say you should be getting, then it's your fault. You're not righteous enough. You're not communicating with God the right way. And so it's similar to, you know, in a way sometimes how we can grow up where there can be a sense of, you know, it's your fault I'm angry. If you would just put the dishes away right, I wouldn't have to yell at you. So we don't know how to piece apart that, oh, when mom and dad yells at me, that is never my fault. That is their choice. And they could respond differently. I mean, in a way they couldn't because subconsciously they're doing the best they can on some level. But the, the feeling is this is my fault instead of, oh, I'm going to give that back to them. That was never my fault. The reason you yelled at me was never my fault. But what might have been my fault was believing on some level that what you were saying was true. And when I say fault, and when I talk about blame, I'm not talking about blame or fault in a moral way. I'm really talking about just to sort out our stuff in a way that we get to take responsibility for the part that was ours and the part that we have power over to change. Because we can never change whether someone else is going to respond with yelling or not yelling. But we can say, now that I'm old enough, now that I'm no longer a child, I can set boundaries, I can walk away. I can leave a relationship that's like that. Okay, It doesn't always feel like we have that permission to set boundaries because we can still be wrapped into what's called this mystified love where we actually think that if we can somehow get it right, 
by doing the right thing so our parents will love us or approve of us or stop yelling at us or whatever it might be. We think if we can get it right, then we're finally going to get the love we always wanted. And what we do is we, ca- we carry the same pattern forward into our lives. And for a lot of us, that is one of the things we're working out when we get triggered by general conference. We are working out which part of this belongs to me. Where is my personal power in all of this? Where was I unaware of my power one year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? And because of that unawareness, I gave my power away. And what parts are not mine? What parts are not within my control or in my realm of personal power? And which parts do I have to grieve and let go of? So conference becomes a time where we're really sorting some of this out. And for those who feel the cynicism about conference, it's usually because on some level there was some investment in the idealistic view of Mormonism, of the LDS Church. I once heard the idea that a cynic is a disappointed idealist. So that is often the case in life. Anywhere we're idealistic or cynical, the other side of the coin is the other side of the coin. And conference can be so painful because in a way, even though intellectually some of us say, I know this wasn't my fault, a certain kind of harm was perpetuated on me. So again, just like an abuse victim can say, I know it's not my fault intellectually, but something in me feels like if I could just get it right, then they would hear me, they would love me, they would accept me, right? If I could just get it right, then my family would finally be able to hear me. And I, you know, even in the work I do, this is not an easy thing to let go of. It's really so deep in us that we just feel like if we could get it right, then we'd be able to control the world. Then we'd be able to control other people's perspectives. Then we'd be able to control their love of us. Okay? So again, this is where we're actually perpetuating some of that same harm that was done to us. It's very, very subtle. And hopefully over time, we do it less and less. And, and maybe one day, maybe one day there would be a world where, where this was understood well enough that we would come out of this mystified love and really be able to take ownership for what parts are ours what parts are other people's, and maybe it would clean things up a bit in our relationships. But until that day, many of us still live in an experience of mystified love, and it's why general conference can be so painful, okay? It's the same reason general conference can be so good for some people. It's like, oh, here's this space where all of my, an- well, where all of my questions can be answered. Here's a space where if I just do A, B, C, or D, then I can know that God will love me and take care of me. And maybe I won't have to face so much pain in this life. Maybe I won't have to face so many disappointments in this life. And what we find as we grow, and this is where a lot of people's cracks happen, is we can be doing all of the to-dos. We can be doing the whole checklist. And suddenly we hit a point, or gradually over time we hit a point, and we say, life isn't what I hoped it was going to be or some of my goals or some of the desired outcomes I have are not what I was hoping. Part of the reason we can feel cynical about Elias General Conference is because we had trusted it. We had believed in it. On some idealistic level, we thought the church was going to save us. We thought Jesus was going to save us. So rather than, rather than being able to acknowledge that, oh, I can, I can utilize cooperation in the world and I can connect with other people, and I can experience maybe some kind of spiritual experience or some kind of sense of something bigger or divine helping me or even guiding me sometimes. But ultimately, on some level, I'm going to go through life, and life is life, and it will have pain. It will have disappointments. 
and no one can save me from that. No one can save me from living. But it does mean that we, we start to trust life as it is. And we also start to trust us as we are. John Bradshaw, in, in the book Creating Love, he talks about it is lack of presence and a shame-based false self that are the pillars of the altered state of being I'm calling mystification. This happens anytime we experienced who we were in a present moment as unacceptable. This can happen whether we took on the persona of the good boy or the good girl, or it can happen whether we took on the persona of the rebellious, or rebellious girl, rebellious boy. So either way, it's a mystified state of being. Because the reality is, nothing is all good and nothing is all bad. No human is all good and no human is all bad. The question is, um, you know, where are we connected to reaching our goals in an effective way? And where are we confused and blocked and either doing things out of guilt and obligation to appear good to ourselves or others? Or where are we blocking ourselves out of fear of the talents and gifts we have and we're actually coming across as sort of degrading ourselves in some way? So in the book, John Bradshaw talks about as we go through this process of individuation, we're moving from a place where we've either idealized our parents or we've degraded them and we're starting to see them as a whole human with both good and bad parts. And we're starting to better understand the context through which they saw the world and we're starting to better understand why they participated in life the way they did, why they saw things the way they did, acted the way they did, felt the way they did. And this can be really helpful as we're practicing working with triggers around Mormonism or general conference or our relationships with Mormons, is anytime we feel an idealistic hope, ah, oh, maybe I'm finally going to be loved and seen and accepted and heard, or anytime we feel the cynical reaction, you know, if my family sees this, we'll be even more disconnected. If my spouse hears this message, he or she will never explore the truth. If the church continues to stay, say this stuff, then people will continue to be duped. They'll never get out of it. Um, Gary Sukoff, who is, I believe, an author teacher, he said, he, he gave the idea that when you interact with another, an illusion is part of this dynamic. This illusion allows each person to perceive what it needs to understand in order to heal. So the illusion itself becomes a benefit in the sense that we see where, where we actually are still not fully whole within ourselves. So where we've either idealized life our parents, the church, our friends, our families, our spouse, where we've either idealized them, so not seen, seen things as they clearly are, as they truly are, or we've degraded them. And that's the more cynical side or pessimistic side where we've compartmentalized the negative and are only seen through that lens. And ultimately what we want to do is we want to take both our idealistic moments and our cynical moments and say, okay, I can use this moment to say, ah, I've bumped up against some kind of possible illusion, some kind of unreality here, and what is the truth? So one of the things that can come out of conference is a real reality check. And this is a part of what can make it painful. Because even though on some level, intellectually, we know this may not be the most healthy place, or even though I love the church in a lot of ways, I now see that its harm on some level outweighs the benefit. I mean, even if you've not gotten to that place, if that's the path that you've gone down or that's the experience you've had, 
there can still be some sense often in us that maybe I'm wrong, maybe this is my fault, maybe this really, maybe I'm blowing this out of proportion and making this a bigger deal than it is. And then, you know, a situation like conference can come or an interaction with, with someone in the religion. And it's like this reality check that says, this is the truth about where this organization is right now. It doesn't mean this is where they'll be tomorrow. It doesn't mean it's where they'll be next year. But this is the truth of where they are right now. So I think that that was one of the things that, as I really sat with some of my own triggers that came up as I heard some of the things that have been said in this last conference, was just like, oh, ouch. <laughs> as, much as, I, as much as I have this hope that maybe, maybe the church really, maybe the church really is more compassionate or understanding or people really are more open you know, and then you hear a talk about being careful about the internet. Or we hear a talk that it would hurt a mother's feelings if her child leaves leaves Mormonism or becomes apostate. And it's just like, oh, you know, so that, that quote, idealistic hope that we might have had, that maybe things really aren't that bad. Suddenly it's like it can swing over to the other side and all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness, this really is that bad. But again, it's finding the truth in both of those polarities. It's finding the truth about, okay, if this really is where the, the Mormon church still is, if this is really still some of the, the messages are perpetuating from their pulpits in general conference, in talks that are being approved by the leaders of the church, if this is the reality, then what does that mean for me? Because it sometimes is a push for us, and these triggers and these cynical triggers are often a push for us to see things a little bit differently. And they give us a chance to assess what our desired outcomes and goals are in life and to assess in what way is my interaction with certain belief perspectives, with a certain organization, even if I'm out, but in what ways is my interaction harming me and helping me? And how do I adjust that in a way that's not harmful to other people? So let's do an example. Let's go through an actual trigger. When I got this letter... One of the things that happened for me was I felt a lot of emotion rise in my own body. And I got it pretty close after conference, I think a day or two after general conference. And I I had actually been triggered into some of my own pain and hurt when I heard some of the messages. And fear, and a lot of fear for me, I think, this last general conference, that if this is happening, then, yeah, I won't ever be as close to my loved ones as I want. And so when I read this letter, I just, I could feel it like swirling inside of me. And I decided that rather than answering the letter right away, which was what I had planned to do, I'd sat down with my computer and I thought, I'm going to start to type out a few notes and I'll answer the uh, letter right away. And then the sense was, you know, instead of doing that, I need to sit with my own triggers and just go through the process myself. Because I still felt so much upheaval. So the first thing that I always go back to is the POET acronym, and we've talked about it in the past, but I'm going to go through it with this trigger that I sat with and just give some ideas for how to keep working with it. So the first thing I did is I just became more present. I, I sat back, I closed my eyes, and I let myself move my attention into my body, and rather than trying to resist it, fix the trigger, answer the letter, to make things all better, I just decided to start with sitting with it. So I took my attention into my body and I just noticed this is what it feels like to feel angry. This is what it feels like to feel confused. This is what it feels like to feel afraid. 
I call it anxious sensation or anxious energy. And I could feel it mostly in my heart. It was swirling in my heart, and I could feel it up into my throat. So that was where I felt it. And you might notice your triggers in a different place. You know, if you sat with any of the things that are still there as you see a meme from General Conference or hear a post, notice where in the body do you feel the sensation of the emotional experience. So I felt it in my heart and chest and up into my throat. And I took time to just sit with it. And I, again, I just labeled the emotions the best way that I could based on my understanding of my feelings. This is what it feels like to feel angry, confused, afraid. And I breathed around it, gave it permission to be there. We tend to resist the reality. We don't want to feel what we're feeling. We get afraid to feel it. And that's why we go into either an aggressive response or we go into a passive response. And it's really hard to just hold the balance of being in the feeling without believing all the stories underneath it. So as I sat with the anxious energy in the heart and throat, I practiced owning that reality with compassion. And then I started to notice, and that's the O of poet, owning reality with compassion. I use the phrase, no wonder I'm feeling anxious, no wonder I'm feeling confused, no wonder I'm feeling afraid. What I really want is deep connections with the people in my life I love. And I'm afraid that this will will create stronger rifts. I'm afraid it will create bigger wedges. I'm afraid I'll never really have the kind of love I want. And so that, you know, it's that practice of starting with owning reality with compassion. This is what it feels like to feel all this. But that doesn't mean these stories are true. And then we move into E, the exploration and poet. And E is looking at the stories. And beginning to identify what really is true here. Is it true that if this message is being said across the pulpit, my nieces and nephews are less likely to find the truth? And I just had to remind myself, I was able to find the truth. And I was extremely TBM. And I shouldn't say, you know, the truth, meaning I know all the truth. I don't. But I was able to come across more information. And I was very TBM. And I spent a lot of years loving the church. So is it true that because this is being said, my nieces and nephews are going to be less likely to find the truth? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe for some people, these messages will actually make them feel more curious. Because the reality is we are where we want to be in our life. And on some level, we are reflecting the desires of our psyche. And this is one of the things that can help us let go of the fact that we were in Mormonism and saw things the way we saw them. It's why someone who experiences alcoholism can say, I want to quit drinking, but then they keep going and drinking, right? On some level, their psyche is trying to sort out because drinking or any kind of coping mechanism is a signal to our system that something needs to be looked at and addressed. It's the same thing with sickness in our body, that sickness is a sign of an invader. It's also a sign of maybe our immune system being down. Same thing with often these emotional responses or these coping mechanisms. It's a sign that something's invaded my psychic space and I've got to figure out how to clear it out. And I am really just kind of going off here. But, you know, this just brings us back to the idea of exploration. And in exploration, we get to look at all of our assumptions and we get to question them. Because how do I act and how do I feel if I believe that this message that I'm hearing about being careful about the internet, if I believe that this message is going to keep 
my loved ones from finding out more information, then how do I react? How do I react to life? How do I react to Mormonism? How do I react to my family in general? I tend to get more anxious. I tend to feel more desperate. And often that coming from that place is not as effective as coming from a place of, oh, I trust that when it's time and that person's ready to see things more clearly, they'll find a way because I did it. And I didn't consciously do it all. But what happened was when things showed up in my life, I chose what to pay attention to, even if that was just subconsciously. So it's trusting on some level our loved ones, when they're ready, will subconsciously or consciously make choices about what to pay attention to. And that's just true for all of us, wherever we are in our lives, in progression with anything. So begin to explore the beliefs under the surface. What am I afraid of? If this is what was said at conference, then what? Dot, dot, dot. If this is what was said at conference, then the Mormon church really isn't ready to give women an equal space, for example. Okay, oh, I can feel that. There's pain there because on some level I want to believe Mormonism is ready for that. But they're not. They're not ready for it today. They might be ready for it next year, next month. Again, we don't have to be cynical about it. But what's the reality about today? And if they're not ready for it today, then what? What kind of action do I want to take based on the reality of today? So the T of poet is taking action. And I took a little bit of action myself after this last conference. Once I moved through poet, I took a little bit of action about what I wanted to express through social media. But, you know, I think it was interesting because when I took action... I actually got triggered again. I was pretty clear. I moved through poet process. I took action on something. I expressed something. It felt good and right and clear. I didn't feel any fear of backlash because I don't know why I didn't. I just felt like it was an authentic expression. I wasn't needy in it. I wasn't needing to get approval or validation, um, nor was I needing to change anyone's mind. I just was. Ex- I just was experiencing an expression. But after I did it, there was a sort of vulnerability that then triggered me back into longing for more validation. So while the action itself felt clear, it's just funny how this process has layers to it. And so as I walked through Poet again after reading this letter, sitting with it, and in that moment, the action I felt really clear about was, I'm willing to be present. So I'm willing to be present for any of my loved ones or anyone who shows up in my space who needs my help. And I'm willing to keep doing that for myself. I'm willing to keep going through the layers as they pop up. So it felt, it felt nice to get clear on the action and to know that the expression I had, I had chosen on social media a few days before felt like enough. I didn't need to keep going on that because that was the question I had when the vulnerability popped up was maybe I should keep doing more messages and keep posting more things and putting out more opinions. But the sense was, no, that, that was the thing I wanted to do for me and that felt clear. And now the next step is just to be present and let myself be surprised. I don't know who else in my, in my space, in my world, in my family circle, friend circle, I don't know who else is going to want and need support down the road, but I'm just going to be willing to be here and be present when that time comes. So that was the action I came to in that moment. So this is why this process is so personal And people can give us opinions about what we should or shouldn't do. But once we walk it through and we 
process and ex do the exploration, often there will be sort of a clicking. I sometimes think of it as a click. It almost feels like my body and my brain, my mind, it's the way I'm thinking, and my feelings or heart, it's like they kind of come together and there's sort of a click. Like all of a sudden everything just, it feels aligned and makes sense. And maybe that sounds a little bit spiritual or religious and can feel a little triggering to hear. I have no idea. But I don't know, but that's the experience I have is it feels like a clear or connection. And maybe it's, maybe it's just a click or connection between our conscious and subconscious self. So when we say, oh, I want to lose weight, but I keep eating junk food, maybe that click is that moment when all of a sudden our desire and what we're actually doing kind of line up. And so taking action can be very personal, and we will know for us what's clear as we go through the process. So I hope that's helpful, and I would say, Donna, you don't need to stop caring. You get to keep caring. Just use the experiences and the emotional triggers around caring to get more clear about how to live in your own personal power and in your place of love and compassion. So next episode, I will do the episode on how to not perpetuate the harm or some of the patterns that we might have experienced, how to not perpetuate them. So hopefully that will be a really fun and interesting episode. And if anyone has any questions or comments, feel free to email me at exmormontherapist at gmail.com or get on iTunes, leave a review. Anytime you're feeling angry, remember you get to learn in that moment more about your own personal power and you don't need to control anyone or anything that you don't have control over. The anger is about you, for you, for your life. I hope this was helpful. Sending out lots of care and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.